Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Many of the viewers requested that we get John on. And John's book is My Search for Madeline. One reporter's 14-year hunt to solve Europe's most harrowing crime. John is spelt J-O-N, and it's Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. All of John's links are in the description box below this video if you want to follow up and get his book. And we've never had John on the channel before, so this is going to be a unique opportunity to get another side to this story that just never leaves the news headlines. So, John, huge thank you for coming on. And firstly, what got you interested in the McCann case? Well, I can tell you it's actually 16 years now. It was 14, that's 16, or going into 16 years. And uh, what got me interested in the case was just literally a, a very early morning phone call told from a, from a foreign desk uh, flunky to just get my, my ass down to Portugal as quickly as possible and uh, cover a story that seemed pretty low-key and pretty uh, minor. But uh, to him, it seemed quite important. I think by nature of the fact it could have been a doctor and she could have been blonde and had blue eyes. So that was that was me, slightly cynical, slightly early in the morning, slightly tired, getting in the car and driving all the way from where I lived at the time in Ronda all the way to southern Portugal, to Pradaluge for, for my first uh, visit there. And so that, that's what got me interested. And from that day, I, I've kind of always covered the case. And always... When did you notice that this was not a run-of-the-mill um, disappearance case? Well, um, probably, that's a good question. Um, probably around halfway through that day, I'd say, um, it began to become a bit like, oh, she's not going to turn up. She's not going to just sort of wander back. Um, we haven't found her body. And I've been like all around that bloody area, all around Pradaluge you know, every single back street off into the country and talk to everyone I could. And I think probably by mid-afternoon, late afternoon, I thought, no, th this is likely to have been a snatch. Um, and, you know, by the time of the press conference that evening, when they famously came out of um, the apartment and gave their press conference at the steps of, of, Ocean, of the Ocean Club, you could sense their despair. It was exactly 24 hours later. And I, I don't know if it was timed almost to the moment that Maddie had got missing. It was around 9.15, 9.30 that night. And it must have been almost exactly that time that Maddie had been taken. And they were just distraught. They were, you know, you could sense it. It was just, you know, the atmosphere, you cut with a knife. And, and it, it's not, at that point, there's not much you can do. It was on the news. It was on the national news. So there wasn't that much for me to do apart from just to sort of take some pics and listen in and try and get a few pointers. And, you know, I, I wasn't a crime journalist. I was a sort of general news journalist, but I had done a lot of crime reporting back in London and, and, and in Spain, of course, a lot of crime down here. And um, so I, you know, I just sort of stuck around for a few days then and did my best to, uh, to try and understand as best as possible what had happened. And it, it was just, 
you know, I then went back for my daughter's birthday, which was quite moving. She was very young at the time and, and then came back out again a couple of days later, in fact, the day after, and then was there for another week, more or less, and backwards and forwards, really, for the first month or two. So, yeah, I did, I did lots of uh, reporting on it live in the resort and got to know all the journalists from the very beginning who were covering it. A lot who at the time knew the case much better than me because they were living and breathing it 24-7. But I, because I'm more of a sort of Sunday news reporter, more, you know, I guess you'd probably say I, I like following a more exclusive beat, separate beat. I, I could go off on angles and leads that may, perhaps the other guys weren't going on because they had to just sort of follow the other sort of daily news agenda. So someone at the Telegraph would have to make sure they followed someone at the Mail, had to follow someone at the Sun. I could be, because I was working for the Mail on Sunday, the Sunday Mirror, um, I, I was able to sort of sort of go off a little bit off diary and, and start digging into stuff that perhaps they didn't. Um, and, and of course, then, and of course, they a lot of them were sent home and then brought other journalists out. So they lost that continuity. But because I've always been in Spain uh, and because there were so many links to Spain, so many, and it's probably highly likely that Madeline did come across the border at some point. And, and because... You know, there's so many stories broke in Spain afterwards. I covered most of those and we broke a load of, load of our own stories as well. So-called sightings and claims of this and that. So I kept a really close interest in it over the years. Um, and, you know, I always thought I should probably write a book on it and never did. Wrote another crime book that sold pretty well right at the beginning and then did a restaurant book, <laughs> slightly different. Um, and then when, when suddenly out of the blue, you know, they announced that they had a German suspect a couple of years ago. I got straight on that. I just got onto the Mail on Sunday news desk and just said, look, you know, can I, do you want me on this? And it was in the lockdown. And, and so they were just delighted. I could get straight over there and before anyone else and really, you know, muscle in on it. And at that point, I thought that, you know, this is perhaps the time I should write a book on it. And so I just, I just sort of immersed myself for a year and a half really just pulling it all together and and i've you know i'm, I'm going to do a second edition of it fairly soon there's going to be another edition and it'll be up and it'll be very different to the first it's gonna be a lot of new stuff the, the case as you probably know keeps mm -hmm. moving and changing and um you know i know you've covered it a fair bit i've seen your name i've tried to contact you sean a couple of times i think we've got mixed up through donald mutual friend donald mcintyre um <laughs> And um, I know you've been talking to people on the case quite a lot, haven't you? You know, so, you know, it, it's and, you know, someone gave me a blank check. I, I could probably go to 10 different doorsteps, 10 different areas tomorrow over the next month and carry on digging. But I have, unfortunately, I haven't got the deepest pockets. I can't keep. So I have to sort of wait for the right moment to um, to, to kind of go off and do my reporting and do my digging. Um, but. I think we're getting close. I think we're getting close to solving the case. All right, well, let's go over this much more slowly then. So on the day in question, you, would you say there was hope early on and the atmosphere changed? Um, I'd say there was hope initially, yeah. Um, I certainly hoped, certainly. Um, but, yeah, I think it became quite quite apparent early on that, that, you know, that she had been taken. But I think what was interesting was the press conference we had in Portimao um, a few days later where the chief of police said, oh, look, we, we know who's taken her. Because then they were saying, well, it was a kidnapping. We know who's taken her and she's within, he said to quote, three 
kilometers or was it three miles of of of, of Pradaluge? so we thought that's i mean what's that all about how do they know this and so there was a sort of hope that perhaps she was alive and that, that you know we were going to get back so there was there was there was some hope among amid, amid the gloom um did you ever find out the basis for them saying that no never found out never found out and i don't know but as you well know sean there's a couple of interesting policemen who are linked to this case fairly senior policemen one who became one of the most senior uh, i would say establishment figures in portugal certainly the top 100 key figures in portugal who's currently in prison uh, and will be in prison for seven to eight years who's that uh, a guy called um cristoval pereira uh he's he was the deputy of of gonzalo amaral in the algarve and he worked on other missing children's cases and and, and has spoken a lot about madeline mccann has written a book on madeline mccann and became the president of the missing persons bureau in portugal but missing children's bureau no less not even missing persons missing children's bureau in portugal then became the president of sporting lisbon and then uh got accused then of corruption in while at sporting lisbon uh, and then uh got found guilty of running a crime gang that kidnapped families and children in lisbon and in sintra and is uh, found guilty of running this gang and is now in prison for it, um, thankfully. I know he was in charge of investigating these matters that he was committing. Uh, the police over there did. And I can tell you that, that what's particularly interesting is his connections to sort of uh, the, the Knights Templar and Opus Dei. And Shady, oh, uh, my goodness. Please tell us all about that. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> Well, you can write it. There's a bit in my first book. There'll be a lot more in the second book. But I, I have to be very careful when I go across the border because I don't want to get uh, picked up as so I go into Portugal. So I don't know if any of them are going to watch this uh, podcast. But, you know, I, I think, am I right in saying you've been down to Orchiva even at one point? Uh, have you been down to, to, to the Alpujarras in Granada? Or do you talk to people, didn't you, on your show who, who are in the Alpujarras? So we've interviewed Mark Williams Thomas, who was out there quite fast. We've interviewed John Wedge at ex-London Met Cop. We've interviewed David Icke. We've interviewed Sonia Poulton. So we've had a range of viewpoints from abduction to some kind of abuse ring. Yeah, the, the abuse parents. ring was interesting. That's, I wanted to ask you about that. that how do you, do you see that as credible? The, the, did you not find a woman who was based out of Orkham claimed she was trafficked at one point? Am I right in saying? Um talk to we've had, we've had every every claim under the sun uh the pe people we've interviewed have claimed everything under the sun regarding mccann um the bottom line is it's one of those things that nobody's ever going to know unless it is solved as you said earlier but that's what drives perpetual interest isn't it it's like who killed epstein who killed jfk uh these things people the public never lose interest in them because they've not been solved I think we are uh, 90% or 95% uh, to solving it. I think when a German police say we are confident that we know what happened to Maddie and that she's dead and that the family pretty much accept that now, that I think, as I understand it, that the evidence is there. It's not, 
it, it's it's not the best clear cut evidence, but it's good evidence. And there's certain bits that I can't unfortunately talk tell you about because I'm sworn secrecy that I do know about that are so good that unfortunately for Mr. Bruckner, he's um he's not gonna get off. Um he, he will go to court and he will be found guilty of of, of at least at the very least abduction. Well, uh, what's what was the role of Opus D in this? And can you explain what they are? Well, I, I mean, it's it's more Knights Templars and Opus Dei, which is is a far kind of uh, quite shady Catholic organisation linked to the Catholic Church. Um, and the Knights Templar were famously come out of the Crusades when Christian Crusaders came down to. Fundamentally, people think they all went to Jerusalem, you know, to fight in Jerusalem during the Crusades, but actually the Crusades were very much linked as well to Spain and Portugal because from 711 up to 1492, Spain and Portugal and bits of France were ruled by the Moors, the, the uh, Moorish uh, kingdoms. So it was traditionally kind of important that Catholics, Protestants, knights came down to fight the, the Arabs in Spain. And so these organisations are celebrated. And I can tell you now that... Uh, some of the key police figures and establishment figures in Portugal are members of these slightly shady groups. Um, and as you probably know, Portugal has a very bad track record for, for networks and rings. And, uh, you know, at the time of Maddie Dick going missing, there was an extremely serious investigation that had been first seen the light of day 30 years earlier then being pushed down and it came up again 20 years earlier and been squashed again and finally it'd been brought forward thanks to the amazing work of, of one of those abused who became a lawyer who was just so bloody minded and insisted it had to come out and that case believe it or not at the time of Madeline going missing you could still sit a, in a cafe in Lisbon with your laptop open and look at pornography legally uh, but in 2008 and 2009, the court it came finally came to court, and uh, various senior establishment figures, uh, well over 30, were found guilty. Although only I think 12 or 13 went to prison, but that included lawyers, TV personalities, doctors, um, a, a huge retinue of, of very senior establishment figures in Portugal. There, there was even claims that the prime minister at the time was linked to it. Even the, one of the um, opposition leaders, um, lots of stuff in the press and the counter suing. So this problem existed. And it's fair to say, would you not agree that, that if the lawyers and the medical profession and the judiciary are involved, it's probably likely that the police force is also involved in some way. Some members of them are involved. I think it'd be it'd be naive to say, oh no, the police have wasn't the police force. I'd be very naive. Um, I'm not I'm not blaming. I'm not you know pointing a finger at anyone here, Sean. But um, there've been some cover-ups, and there's been a lot of um, conjecture about exactly how closely some of the police were involved in this case, how much covering up went on. And some of the linked cases, such as the current case of Hazel Bean, as she usually say in Irish, Behan, you may know it there. But Hazel Bean, who was... I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. 
the remade mentor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the Mafia's past, present, and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive in-conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. Very savagely by a man on camera in um, and around Pradaluche, very close to Pradaluche in Portimao. And she, her case, she was treated appallingly and slut shamed uh, and you know the police knew actually knew they said to her we know who did this but they didn't help her get the case out they just ignored her they treated her like dirt and other cases there the other five cases that are due up at some point we'd hoped it would have been this spring looks like it's going to be the autumn now one of those other cases was a child on a beach who was abused by a man who looked strikingly like Christian Bruckner, who the family say is Christian Bruckner. Um, and they obviously want to get justice there. Of course, there's the four children in the park that were exposed to Christian Bruckner at near midnight. Can you imagine the scare of your child being under a, you know, in a play park, very dark near midnight, and a man takes his dick out and whatever. Mm. And so they want justice, of course. Um, so eventually we'll, we'll hopefully see it, but it's but right the way through it's been slowed down and slowed down and slowed down, and um, it's a painstaking process. Uh, and I'm very pleased to say that you know I've got very good access to the police and the judiciary and a lot of the key characters that that, that are in this, and and a lot of it's just a sort of slow burn of telling their stories and bringing them together and speaking to them and updating them and them updating me and sort of, you know, trying to trying to go forwards as best as possible. But I am confident, despite what you may read in the Sun or the Mail or where, in fact, all the papers recently, that the case is now being dropped and that, you know, he could be out any minutes in. I'm, I, I'm pretty confident he, that's not the case. All right, John, going back to the first few days again then. So the McCanns were criticised for their behaviour in the aftermath do you think that that criticism is uh, valid or do you think they were in shock and people behave differently in shock so you can't, there's no real yardstick there as to how to judge people? It, the, they were criticised in lots of ways. In which particular way are you referring to? Well, they were criticised um, for not showing enough emotion, um, for going out jogging and, and not you know, joining the search and things like this. Uh, various criticisms have come to light. 
I think it's fair to say, Sean, that that everyone acts differently, and you've got a medical couple, one a fairly senior uh, career doctor, one a GP, and who see and and live and breathe death on a daily basis, um, have to stay strong for their patients, have to handle grief and emotion that it would be fairly normal for them to want to hold it together and, and, and to, and to, to look perhaps, I'm sure they, they I mean, they said they looked emotional enough to me when I saw that press conference, they certainly showed a lot of emotion, but yeah, I think, um, why, why would you need someone to break down on t- TV to think that they actually showed emotion? I think it's the criticism was unfair. Yeah. Yeah. There's some conjecture about leaving your kids in a room and supposedly going backwards and forwards, but you know, equally all their friends were, should also be criticized. And, you know, a lot of people did it back then. They don't so much now, do they? And, uh, yeah, there were some mistakes made. They'd be the first to admit it. And, um, but no, I think it's difficult to criticise them. I think that's a, that's a side issue, really. So, in these cases, then, the parents are often on the suspect list. What happened with the Portuguese police and the parents? Yeah, well... <sighs> I think they were desperate to find some clues and to, to, to actually move forwards. And I think, obviously, logically, everyone would always look at uh, the family in a case like this. It's the most obvious thing you would do. And, and probably 75% of the time, you'd be right and you would actually find, you know, the perpetrator amongst the family um, or close friends. But um, so, you know, it's understandable they would bring the family in for questioning and they would, like, pick apart their timelines and... Uh, you know, I, I just think they were naive to think that there was a group of professional doctors that could have been so deceptive and could have been so, um, you know, I don't know if it was evil, but certainly um, completely criminal in, 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 um, in, you know, plotting to protect their friends, if you like. I, I think that to me, it seemed fairly obvious. And I think it's obvious to the British government uh, and certainly Operation Grange that they weren't... Um, they weren't involved. They weren't guilty from the beginning. Um, so I think that what it lost, it lost two to three months of valuable time when they could have been looking for key clues. So I think it actually it actually scuppered the whole investigation by you know getting very fixated on the McCanns. What about the allegation that Madeline was drugged, the cow pile and all that stuff? They deny it. They deny it. They said they had used drugs. They said they had them, but they said they hadn't given it to them. And there's no evidence, is there? So, you know, let's just, just accept it, that they didn't drug her. Why would they have those drugs with them then? I think everyone used Calpol and things like that, didn't they, in, back in the day? I think they still do to help the kids sleep. Um, especially if you're a doctor, I think, you know, it would be, wouldn't be out of the norm to have, have um, certain sleeping drugs or pills. I, I think it's always a bit of interest in the fact that the two twins... Now eighteen, aren't they? They um, they slept right the way through, apparently, which is amazing. But you know, having had kids of my own, it's amazing. You know how how they can sleep through these sort of things. And once they're asleep, they really are asleep. You know, I'm not I'm not a doctor, and I'm not you know, so I, I couldn't I couldn't really comment on that. All right, so you took us through day one. Then what happened on day two? Um. Gosh, it's 15 years ago, 16 years ago, Sean. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we, I could personally, me, I continued to, to dig on on uh, what, had, what had sort of going on. I think by day end of day two, I think we were starting to be a little bit suspicious of um, 
one of the locals, Mr. Murat, um, uh, who I think, you know, is he's been exonerated. And but I still think he was very suspicious at the time. Um, what the was the suspicion based on? I think based on his sudden, in, very deep interest in the case and the fact that he was very closely linked to the oper- to the police uh, operation, he was translating a lot for the police. He was bringing a lot of characters, local characters in. He was showed a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for the case. Uh, plus, he also coincidentally lived so close and had line of sight of the actual apartment. So I think there was it would be logical in the way that the police would look at the family the journalists there would start looking at other people around them as well. So if you like, that's our job really, isn't it? As journalists is to, is to look at all the possibilities and eventualities, which is what, what I was doing. Um, as you may know, uh, the Sunday mirror um, actually did call up the British police in Leicestershire and did report him to the police who then reported to the Portuguese police who then did eventually see fit to arrest uh, Robert Murat. Um, and actually, we, you, you know, we didn't run the story first because it was on Sky News and the dailies first. But I think you, that's, if you like, I think that was fairly responsible reporting because we were reporting on what we thought was a possibility or a good possibility. Um, and um, what else? I think we also pretty quickly discovered this huge number of... Um, a kind of unofficial list of suspects. Um, sorry, suspects is the wrong word. Uh, people who would be on a, um, a sex offenders list or a, or a list of, of, of people who would be of interest, maybe you should, better way of putting it, in that area. Now, if you bear in mind it's a tiny village of two or 3,000 people, to have a list of up to 600 or 600 and a bit over of people of interest... <laughs> It's quite, it's quite staggering. That did, by the way, go to Lagos, Lagos, which is a little bit further away and has a few more people. But it, it was a very large, long list of people that supposedly, as you know, had Christian Bruckner on it. Supposedly he was he was visited, but I doubt that happened very much, um, particularly because he wasn't actually living at the address supposedly the police had for him at the time. Um, but there were a lot of so that early on we we knew and we were we went off to a couple of places that we knew there were various british uh, and german sex offenders <clears throat> one of being barrow saint jao which is about 5 miles 6 miles away just outside and we um dug around looking into some of these people and trying to see if if, if there was any you know had there been any police interest the police had been going around interestingly knocking on doors and seeing a few people but nothing came up so yeah, day two, day three, that was the sort of, um, that was this general thing that happened. Then I said I was back in, in Spain for a few days and came back out again and it was more, just more digging and as the case developed. And what were the police announcing as the case developed? Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, very little. Incredibly little. You know, I mean, I think. One of the most interesting things I, I found was early on before, I think I, I, I probably the first to establish this was that the main operation was, was coming out of Portimao about half, 20 minutes, half an hour away. Um, and that's where the, the headquarters were for, the, for that side of the Algarve. And there were probably somewhere like 20 or 30 um, detectives, mostly plain clothes, um, who who were just who were dragged down from Lisbon, Porto, and all up the coast, and they were sort of there to 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 follow leads. But the un, you know, the undeniable thing was that, that, that they were hanging around. I kept going there; they all be hanging around. They were sitting there; they were like bored, and they were just like, we, we you know, we've got leads. We want to get on with stuff, but we're not being sent off. And you know, and they they were quite friendly um, with me. And, and my Portuguese is re- relatively limited, but I tried to speak to them in Portuguese or. Certainly, they speak good English, most of them, and and it was quite apparent that there was there wasn't a whole lot of activity going on. There wasn't enough real chasing stuff, and that might be they didn't have that many leads, didn't have that much. Um, so they had they seemed to have the manpower, but not necessarily the guidance or the the leads they needed. Because as you may know, Sean, that the the cameras, for example, on the motorway driving into Spain weren't working, it turned out, and they shut the border, but it was 24 hours later. Now, I got pulled over, ironically, 48 hours later, going back and was grilled, like went through the boot of my car, and I was just like, you know, I'm a journalist covering this stuff, and you're <laughs> around with you into my boot and asking me this and that, and I, you know. So it was, there was lots of mistakes, so many mistakes from the beginning. I mean, frightening, frightening large amount. Do you know how long Murat was held for and why he was cleared? Um, it wasn't. He was made an arguido. I don't think he was held for that long. Um, I'm going to say I think they kept him up very late at night before they questioned him. They made it really uncomfortable for him, um, and he was cleared. This is quite good. It's quite interesting. I, I'm not. I don't even want to really guess. So I, I'm not sure who was cleared. I'd say in the first few months, fairly fairly early on. Who was the next person to be questioned? Uh, the McCanns were after that. Well, actually, they questioned the, his Russian friend, Serkai, um, Serkai Malinka, and they questioned his uh, Murat's girlfriend, Michaela, uh, and they were friends. They went to Jehovah. They were both Jehovah's, and um, weirdly, they'd actually chatted on the night three times, various phone calls between the three of them, but they don't remember. They didn't remember the phone calls, which was very odd. Um, which I always think is very suspicious, but to this day hasn't been explained really properly. Um, around you know, not long after Madeline went missing, um, I, I, I'm not. I mean, I'm not interested in pointing the finger at uh, any of them now. But the, there's certainly some, still some, some as as you'll find in the book, some kind of questions that haven't been answered on on, on those on on those specific people. 
So you said the McCanza question next, and did they cooperate fully with the police? Not in, I think um, I think they did initially. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. Um, but there were there were lots of um, there were claims that they they refused to do an ID parade or go out uh, and, and do a reconstruction. So that, I think there were things that that the Portuguese would say they didn't do, and they didn't help with. Um, I think it was in their interest to help and be as honest as possible. I don't think they had any intention of trying to, to cover anything up. And did they have high-level connections with the British government for the British government to get so involved? No, I don't think so. They had a friend who was a journalist, fairly senior. They were able to get calls in to, to, to some of the big media networks. And it was fairly clear this story was going to be huge. So I think it was only fair that the British embassy got involved quickly and um, came down and gave them some moral support. And also, as you can understand, needed some media backing as well, because there was a, I think it's hard to, I think, I think you'd be, you'd struggle. You'd be hard pressed to find Sean a, a case. At least I can't remember there many cases, certainly, certainly Diana, but I, I can't think of many cases going back now where you not only had every single tabloid newspaper, but you had every single broadsheet newspaper and you had every single TV network, radio stations from the UK, that is, but also from Spain, from Portugal, from America, from France, from Germany. So you, it's, it's, it's unusual to have something that goes right across the board from the red tops right the way through to the broadsheets. You know, when you, when you find that someone from the Telegraph who actually who was an employee of mine for, for a couple of years, Fiona, was the Telegraph's correspondent for the Spain and Portugal, when you discover that she spent nearly three months living in Pradaluche through that case, you realise quite how important that case was, how big that case was and still is. The fact that the Telegraph, which you would think probably there would find other really important stories to cover in Spain and Portugal, was actually based out of Pradaluche. Yes, she did, interestingly, she did go off. She was sent off to Barcelona for a few things. She went off to Beethoven for a couple of stories, went to Mallorca, but she had to fundamentally come back and base herself in Pradaluge for the for the duration until eventually, I think when the McCanns went back to the UK, that was the point that the, a lot of the papers pulled out. Although, as you probably know, the Sun and the Mail and the Mirror stayed for nearly a year. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can give you quite a good idea of what happened but the truth is that the best people to talk to really would be those three or four journalists who were there for the first year who know the nuts ins and outs of the case better than i do i've interviewed quite a lot for my book which has helped me pull together you know as best as i can a chronology of what happened in the early days but i think if you if you wanted to use my you know my strengths is what's happened for the last few years because that's where I've really, you know, lived and breathed and immersed myself in the case. So, you know, I mean, Mark Williams Thomas, you've probably spoken to, who's now thinks that Christian Brooke was innocent. He um, was there at the beginning and he studied it at depth. He's a policeman. So, you know, it, it, the ins and outs of the of the evidence, talk to him about it for sure. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, the, I'll fully admit, I'm not the best person on the minutiae of the first year. Um, I did certainly cover it a lot, um, but maybe slightly uh, on the periphery. I can't imagine what it must have been like. All those journalists congregated in an area that's you know thinly populated. You just every day just waiting for something to break. Is that was that the atmosphere? 
<laughs> absolutely horrible <laughs> Sean. Some people love it, but I can tell you it's horrible. There is, <clears throat> well, I think it was a whatever night, must have been the third or second night. <clears throat> it was a Saturday night. There must have been 50 journalists from the UK in a hotel bar. I probably, no exaggeration to say that on one table that I was sitting on with about five or six of them, there were 14 or 15 full pints of beer. Mm. And I mean, talking of full pints, you know, because everyone's got rounds in. Oh, it's my round. Oh, I'll get eight beers. Oh, it's my round. I'll get eight beers. And, you know, people like me can drink a pint in half an hour. But, you know, so, you know, so these guys were like, I mean, it was just beyond belief how much alcohol there was. It was like a kind of holiday atmosphere. Everyone was away. And that continued into the early hours. We went back to someone's villa things happen that you, you just just shouldn't happen abroad. And I know that, that the word got back to the news desks and there was some serious uh, ramifications. People were ticked off. Some were dragged back to England. It was it was a complete bun fight, as we call it, in Fleet Street. And um, uh, as, as you said, there's a lot of paranoia about, you know, getting the leads. There's also a lot of camaraderie, people helping each other to a certain extent. But there's also a lot of people wanting to kind of work on their own stories and, and get on with their own stories. It, it is remarkable. A press pack of that size rarely will you see nowadays, and certainly not. Can you imagine the investment that the papers would have had to spend on covering that for two, three months? You're talking, I'm going to estimate that Telegraph will have spent on Fiona being there nothing short of about 20 or 30,000 euros, renting apartments, going around, food, drink, traveling there to other places. So. Yeah. Do they have help? They did have help. Yeah. They are, were they well connected? I don't know. They're reasonably well connected. They're sort of establishment doctors, aren't they? He's a good doctor. He's got a good reputation. They probably had help that, unfortunately, the average working class person may not have had. I don't think the McCanns disguised that. I think they feel they were lucky to have that help. But it, it backfired in other ways. I think bringing the media storm actually inadvertently may have sealed her death, her daughter's death. So it works two ways and and i i think they they deserved the help once it got that big they needed the help and i don't begrudge them of it certainly and and i think that they a story like this is obviously way out of proportion with other missing children globally but as they've always said and they continue to say and they pointed out in the book to me that this brings attention to other missing children and other works globally and if it you know it insists if it makes puts it that bit harder and it brings that bit more attention onto um, these kind of people, then it's not a bad thing. So during your early stints then, how long were you there for exactly? As I said, first few days, thank you. for the first three days, then back here in Spain, then back down there for three or four days, then back in Spain for a week, then went back out again. I'd say I went out three or four times in the first month. And then I may have gone back again, let's say month two for three or four days or a week. It's, I can't really remember. Is it important? Were there any other big breaks after Marat? Certainly did a lot on the Russian guy, Serhii Malinka. It was very interesting. What was um, his role? What was his role? He was just a Russian expat based down there and friends with Murat, as you say, who was, a, who was made an Arguido or, or, or a suspect. Um, I think there's questions about, you know, his access to homes. They were setting up a, a state agency. He's an IT guy, 
knew a lot about computers. So when the police raided his place, supposedly various computers that he were looking after got wiped. So you have to make your own conclusions there. Um, and, you know, I think he's, you know, he's been exonerated. He came under an enormous amount of pressure from private investigators. You know, you may have heard his car got firebombed. Someone wrote the word Fala speak on the pavement next to his car. He, you know, he's supposedly did, he's written a book, I think. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I've had a little look at it. It's nothing really that interesting in it. Uh, but um, he's had a kid now and a wife. So, you know, he's getting on with his life. I hope he's all right. It's, it's possible to say, um, you know, again, I, I can only refer you to, to, to what I did in it in my book and, and really bring this back to who I think is the main suspect here and continues to be the main suspect and who I think was involved. And that's Christian Bruckner. So when you left the location then, were you watching it from a distance over the years? Of course, yeah, very much so. Of course, yeah, yeah. Anything that, that broke on, on Maddie, I was watching. And as I said, I quite a few times would be asked to go down to look into something. Or In fact, we got quite a few leads ourselves. I, I, you know, I'd actually set up a newspaper called The Olive Press then, and it's still going today. And so we, we, we cover the Iberian Peninsula. So we got a lot of leads and calls. Um we spoke to quite a lot of people on the ground in Portugal. And so I, I quite often went over to Portugal and other stories uh, as well as Ma as the Madeline case. And um, that meant, you know, I, I kind of kept close contact with what was happening there. But yeah, very interesting. I, I guess you could say I was fascinated with the case and, and everything that happened, you know, anything that happened in the case, I, I would, you know, be really interested in particularly primarily looking for a Spanish angle. So there was no Spanish angle as, sort of marginal for our readers i tried to make sure that that our readers had things that were relevant to to spain or andalusia in particular which is where we're based and what were the most interesting leads um well we got we had a little various sightings around nurka west of malaga were very interesting um that kept sort of popping up there was an interesting one of supposedly a businessman on a plane, Labitha, uh, which we had a good look at. And then there was a fascinating um, lead from a, an Angolan um, basketball player who had moved to Huelva and claimed that he had to live in Huelva, which is across the, the Portuguese border. It, it, on the way to Sevilla, the nearest part of Spain to Portugal. He, he claimed that he'd worked for, um, he worked in nightclubs and he worked for uh, people who ran nightclubs in and around Faro and um, on the Algarve and that he, he knew the people who ran these clubs were people who kidnapped children and sexually abused children. And he claimed that Maddie was one of the children who'd been snatched to order and she'd been basically taken by this gang. And he, he then weirdly said he, he thought she would end up in America, which was a really odd line. Um, but the, what was really interesting about this guy was that he wasn't looking for publicity, really. He'd actually, what is most interesting was that he'd gone with a, he hired a, a lawyer and he'd gone to the local police in Huelva to investigate it. And of course, typically the national police in Huelva decided straight away, oh no, they sent all the information over to to the um the uh police in portugal and i think that immediately got squashed and they just 
lost interest. So then we put him in touch with Operation Grange and the McCanns. Um, and the, at the time, they were very interested in what he had to say, and they they actually came down and spoke to him. I don't, and I never. The weird thing is, he's vanished off the face of the earth, and it, it's just really strange. Like the, the six foot six Angolan basketball player can just vanish off the face of the earth. It's just really strange. Um, I, I, you know, it's one of those horrible things. I just, I just, my mind, you know, I, I really fear for the guy. Actually, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, he knew these people and he, he claimed at the time he claimed that one of his own family members had been snatched by this gang. So, Sean, it, that, yeah, that, that was that, that really fascinated me. I mean, you know, I did that story for us and it then ended up in the front page of The Sun. Such was the interest of the Madeline case at the time um, that, you know, and it, you know, and but you look back and you think, God, well, this guy, does this guy really he actually gave me the names of these people. And again, we ran it up the flagpole and I haven't put them in my book for legal reasons, but you know, that, that what he's saying is entirely credible, entirely credible and entirely believable when you, when you bear in mind the, um, the sort of investigations that, that, that Operation Grange and the BKN Germany have, have, um, have been doing over the last few years. Yeah. And that was the path that David Ike took me down as well. So you said there were various sightings. How often were the sightings getting reported to you and how did you discern whether they were credible or not? Jesus, yeah, there were lots. There were lots of them. I mean, initially, just everything you, you looked into. I mean, there was one amazing one where um, a campsite had a, some German visitors in a combi van and they'd arrived at a campsite in Mikas and they checked in and they'd booked previously for two adults and two children. They turned up with a third child who was Maddie's age that looked tired and, you know, looked groggy. And it was the day or two days after, you know, she'd gone missing. So you can imagine, we were like, oh, you know, we, we solved the case here. And we got down to the campsite and then they got in the visitor's book and there wasn't a third child's name in there. And, you know, then we traced this family back to Germany and, we actually got one of the German newspapers to go, you know, I probably should have got myself. I wish I had, but we well, actually it didn't make any difference in the end because the German newspaper went for us, knocked on the door and discovered that yes, they were been there and they did actually have a third child, but for some reason there'd been a translation error and they hadn't put it in. And there was the third child. And yes, she was about the same age as Madeline and she did look fairly similar. It's one of those, you know, and it took us two weeks perhaps to, to, to really dig into that. But, that's one of those things, those rabbit holes that you go down to and, and one of these cases are when you're doing a crime book, right? Yeah, and with the sightings, were people reporting the unique colour on the eye? No, not, 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 they weren't. The Columbona. Yeah. No, they weren't. No. But that girl in, uh, in America recently supposedly had one, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah, we did, we did quite a bit on her as well recently. Yeah, yeah. What, what... That was a massive thing, wasn't it? When she first announced that, what did you think? I didn't believe it. Although, I would say within five minutes, didn't believe it. And I went through my sources with Maddie, Madeline, um, family, and it was straight away just, they just said, look, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not her. And, you know, but 
so we had to go up the flagpole a bit but you know so i was i you know i did a, i did the bare modicum of checks and it was just clear it wasn't her and we didn't even write anything and didn't run a, run a single word about it just because what's the point i'm trying not to gonna do anything that's just sensational for the sake of it i mean a, you may have seen we did a story a month ago just explaining that the the case isn't dead it isn't leaving Brownsville court it's still it's going to rumble on but we just try and like correct what's out there and try and do it as clearly and correctly as possible um you know there's a lot of there's a lot of clickbait out there we've, we've got a paywall now so we just want quality people who sign up to us and use us so it's not about sensational journalism and trying to get people just to, to watch to read stuff we want people to want to read it and read it for a reason so we did something about maddie's being 18 that, that seemed appropriate but but yeah i think it's i find it amazing that you know that you'll have a story in in a set say the mirror or the sun or the mail and within an hour it's in all the other papers and the star just regurgitated and just think but yeah that was a remarkably odd case wasn't it that girl she's a strange girl wasn't she Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.